1 Samuel is uh, the book that we've been looking at is actually two books, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were really one book originally, and they're all about people who are in pursuit of something. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, was in pursuit of getting a son, and King Saul is in pursuit of David right now, and David is in pursuit of his own life, and we've been looking at all of these different sorts of circumstances where people are chasing something down, and behind the scenes... Through the entire thing that we've looked at, today is week number 12, behind the scenes, we've repeatedly watched God be the one who is in pursuit of something or someone. And repeatedly, God is like, I am pursuing the person who will pursue me. I'm pursuing the one who will respond to me. God is after the one who is after him. And so we finally found him. His name is David. He's been anointed to be the new king, even though Saul is the current king. And Saul hates David now because David is the next king and everybody's giving David all this credit for things like killing Goliath. Oh, and Saul is upset about all that. So now Saul is trying to kill David. And for the past couple of weeks, we've seen David on the run. Today, we're picking up the story where David is still on the run, but there's this other question that I want to just throw out there that we're all kind of thinking about. It's all bubbling in our minds as we get into the study, and the question is this, how do you know if it's God who's leading you? How do you know if God is the one who is giving you this thing to do, or if it's yourself, or if it's someone else? And even if you know that it's God, how do you know when he wants you to act and when he wants you to wait for him to act? These are some really big questions, and they don't get totally answered by today's passage, but we get some principles that help us answer them in this passage. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to flip open to it, or you're just using the app, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 23 through 24. I'm going to start in verse 1 of 23. Excuse me, 23. It says, When David was told, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and looting the threshing floors. He inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? I'm going to pause there again to remind you of the story. Last week, remember, David was on the run and he was hiding in a cave. And there was one moment where a prophet came to David and said, David, God wants you to leave the stronghold, leave the cave, and go back to Judah. And remember, I made a a statement like, holy cow, I wouldn't want to leave the safe place to go to the place where I'm in danger again. Judah was the place where Saul could easily find him. And David is hiding in this cave. He's in this area that's got lots of caves, and so it's easy for him to stay safe there. But the prophet says, go to Judah. And now we know why. See, we didn't know last week why God was asking him to leave and go to Judah, but now we know, because now David is in the area of Judah, and he hears a message about a city in the area of Judah, and that message is that these people are being oppressed. And so David, right here, number one, we get a picture of why God had moved him away from the safe place, because now he needs to be in a place where he's accessible to the people who need some help. He's moving him. He's positioning him. Number two, David is now in the place where he can start acting like a king. He's on the run, right? But he's now able to start acting like a king because what do kings do? When a king hears that someone in the kingdom is suffering, the king rescues that person. The king goes and figures out how to save them. And so now David has the opportunity to save these people. God has moved him to a strategic position. Now David has the ability to become the king, to step into it. And then here's the amazing thing. It tells us that immediately after David hears it, he goes and inquires of the Lord. He inquires the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And God answers him, go attack the Philistines and save Keilah. God could have said, this is why I moved you back to Judah. This is why you're where you are, because you are positioned to save this day. You are positioned to solve this problem. But I want to highlight something for you. This is the first time in the book of Samuel that we have seen the phrase, David inquired of the Lord, or David sought the Lord. 
This is the first time that shows up. And you might be like, well, wait a minute. We already know that David was a praying man. He wrote a psalm that I read to you last week. We already know that David had a relationship with God. He's written a lot of psalms, and and he gave God credit for the whole Goliath thing. And as a matter of fact, we also know that David has previously inquired of the Lord. We know that because the last chapter told us about a guy named Ahimelech who was a priest, and he said to the king, Saul, he said, was this the first time I inquired of the Lord for David? No, I've done it many times. And anyway, in the previous chapter, Ahimelech, the priest, who, by the way, Saul slaughtered in that chapter, if you remember from last week, Ahimelech, the priest, said, I've inquired of the Lord on David's behalf multiple times. And yet the writer, Samuel, has not told us directly that David sought the Lord until this moment. Why? Well, there's one other thing. You see, David now has a priest with him. He didn't have a priest with him before. Let me get to that in just a little bit. For now, let's just highlight this one principle. When David faced a problem, he sought the Lord. David faced a problem, and he sought the Lord. Now, you and I do that all the time, right? After we reach the end of our rope, then we seek the Lord. We're like, I've tried everything. I've done all that I know how to do. And I finally, I'm now going to seek the Lord. I'm going to ask God, God, what do you want? But notice that David's doing this at the beginning. At the moment he heard there was a problem in the city of Keilah, at that very moment, he's like, okay, I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to inquire the Lord. What does God want me to do in this situation? And we find out that the reason he's able to do that is because he has a priest with him. Let me show you one of the verses from last week that we read, but we didn't discuss a lot. It's the end of last week's chapter. Chapter 22, verse 20, it says, but one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. Last week, we saw this guy named Ahitub, we saw this guy named uh, Abiathar, who's a son of Ahimelech, who was a son of Ahitub, just a whole bunch of priests. And we see Abiathar has escaped. He wasn't killed by Saul. He's escaped and he's now with David. In other words, David now has a priest. And in a few verses from now, we're going to see verse 6 where it says, Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. Now, the writer of Samuel saved that till verse 6. Because narratively speaking, it would have been better if I had saved it to verse 6. Because all along this journey, you would have been asking the question, well, how does David know God's will? How did David ask God? How did God answer David? And you'd be wondering all this stuff. And then you get to verse 6, and it says, Abiathar had brought the ephod. And for you and me, you're like, so what? But for people back then, they would have been like, oh, now I get it. David inquired of the Lord. I was wondering how he was inquiring of the Lord. When I was a kid, I wondered this all the time. I was like, there's so many times in the Old Testament where someone hears God's voice, where someone inquires of the Lord. And so I just adopted this sort of understanding that everybody in the Old Testament just heard God talk to them. And I didn't. And so I lived in this world where the idea was always pray about a thing and then wait until you hear God talk to you. And I've told you many times, God doesn't talk to me that way. It's not like I look in the mirror and God is on the other side of the mirror saying things to me. It's not like I have dreams at night and God shows up in a vision and says things to me. Maybe you've experienced some of those things. It doesn't happen with me. It's not like I just am sitting quietly in a room and I hear this voice sort of showing up. That doesn't happen to me. And so for most of my life, I've been like, how does David hear from God? And here's the thing. When I was a kid, no one ever told me it was because of the ephod. But that's what Samuel's saying. The reason David can inquire of the Lord is because he's got a Beathar with him and a Beathar has the ephod with him. So now let me explain to you what the ephod is. The ephod is an apron made out of linen worn by the priests and only the priests. And remember, I've told you there were ephods and then there was 
the ephod. Ephods were the aprons that any priest would wear when he's doing like his sacrificial duty. But the high priest had the ability to wear the ephod. And the ephod was one that had these little pockets in the front that would hold these two stones. And we have no idea how they were used, really. But these two stones were called the Urim and the Thummim, and God had given them to the priests for figuring out God's will. It was in the law of Moses that God had given the priests the ephod with the Urim and the Thummim that the priests were trained to know how to use so they could determine God's will. So that's why Samuel makes a point to tell us that Abiathar is with David and he's got the ephod. That's how David is talking to God. He goes to Abiathar, he says, can you ask God this question? And Abiathar follows the principles that Moses laid out about the Urim and the Thummim. He does whatever he needs to do, and he gives David the answer, and now David has the answer. But i got to be honest with you. If you don't believe in God's authority over the priests, and if you don't believe in the authority of the law of Moses, and if you don't believe in the presence and active presence of God, then on the outside... You might just see some dude playing with rocks. And you might doubt that that was really God speaking. And here's David. He's not the priest. He doesn't know how these things work. He doesn't know how to do the ephod. He's asking God this question, but he's trusting that Abiathar and these, this thing, whatever it is, he's trusting that the channel between Abiathar and God is clean but he gets challenged immediately. Take a look at the next few verses. It says this, But David's men said to him, Here in Judah, see, they're in Judah, not in the stronghold, not in the safe place. They're in Judah. Here in Judah, we're afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? David, you took us out of the stronghold. You made us come back to Judah because God told you to come back to Judah. Well, here we are, and we're scared, and we're close to Keilah, but we're still not at Keilah. We're even more scared of Keilah. Once again, it says this, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. Here's your second thing to write down. Faced with opposition... David did the most amazing thing. He sought the Lord. Faced with a problem, David sought the Lord. Faced with opposition, David sought the Lord. He immediately says, oh no, these guys don't know, they don't trust that God's word is God's word. These guys don't trust that Abiathar is giving us God's word. And so David goes right back to Abiathar and asks him again, are you really telling me God's word? And Abiathar says, yup, did it right the first time, still doing it right. God is still saying yes. And the most amazing thing is David is like, I don't care what the men say around me. I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to do what God says. Let's just finish up the rest of this little section here, verse 5 through 6. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. See, for you and for me, that, para that uh, paraphrase thing there in verse 6 doesn't have the same kind of oomph. But for the original people, they would have been like, oh, light bulb moment, they have the ephod, that's why they know what God's will is. That's why I brought it in earlier. But you see what happened here. God said, go, they went, and it worked. Amazing. Don't, don't take away from this that when you follow God, it's going to work out. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But at, at this moment, at least, it did. Because there's a specific thing that I want you to notice. David was listening to God, and he rescued other people despite the opposition of his men. David listened to God and he rescued other people despite the opposition of the people around him. Now, I could stop there and just make this whole message a point of pay attention to God even when the people around you are not. 
Or pay attention to God even when the people around you are trying to lead you in an opposite direction. I, I could make that kind of point with you. But I think Samuel's trying to make a different point. And I think that because of that verse 6. Because of the emphasis on the fact there's an ephod and a priest there. Because of the way David repeatedly goes to the priest to double check. See, I think the writer here is trying to communicate to us the thing that we know all the time. See, I don't think you and I have a problem when we know what God wants us to do, doing it. I think for most of us, when we finally decided this is God's will, we're okay doing it. I think for most of us, the problem is figuring out if it's really God's will or not. I think for most of us, the problem is, well, I think this way, and the Bible says this thing, and the people around me are saying this other thing, and the circumstances around me are saying, I don't know who to believe, I don't know whether it's God's will or my will or whatnot, and so because I just don't know if it's really God's will, I'm just not going to do anything. And David could have been in that kind of quandary, but holy cow, he's got, he's got an ephod with him, he's got a priest with him. Isn't it great that he's got this answer he can go to? But see, that's our problem. Our problem is not, will I do God's will despite the opposition? Although it might be for you, and it might be for me sometimes. But our problem is mostly, how convinced am I that this really is God's will? And in fact, I know that's the point of the next two chapters, because it's a theme that shows up in some really interesting ways. We just looked at David, but now let's take a look at Saul. Saul, in the next part of the story, something really fascinating happens here. Let me share it with you. Verse 7. It says, Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Did you notice? Saul is on the hunt for David. He finds out where David is. David's down in Keilah. He's just rescued these people. Keilah is a city that has gates and bars. And so if David is inside the city, then Saul can easily attack him. And because the circumstances are so obviously easy for Saul, Saul's conclusion is, God's in charge of this. God wants me to kill David. Do you see that? Saul actually says, this is God's will. God has delivered him into my hands. But you and I know better. We know that Saul's wrong. Saul is absolutely wrong about God's will in this situation. He thinks he knows God's will. And just strangely, for some reason, amazing, Saul's idea of God's will perfectly lines up with Saul's own desires. It's amazing. Saul's idea of God's will perfectly lines up with what is easiest for Saul. Saul's idea of God's will is for Saul's benefit. Do you see that? But he's wrong. And we know he's wrong, not just because we already know David has been anointed to be the king, not because we've read the earlier stuff in the chapter. We see it again here. Take a look at this, verse 9. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. See, there it is. David is like, I'm going to talk to God, so we need that thing. Okay, bring the ephod. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. But just keep going. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him. Look at this. But God did not give David into his hands. God is protecting David. See, 
Even if you read through the rest of this chapter, we're going to skip over the rest of the chapter, so I'll tell you just the quick story of what happens. In the next couple paragraphs, Jonathan, Saul's son, comes to David because Jonathan wants to encourage David. He wants to remind David to stay faithful to God, and he wants to remind David that Jonathan plans to stay faithful to him and that he knows that David is going to be the king. And then after that, there's this other little situation with Saul where Saul is trying to find David and then he, he sees David up ahead and he's chasing David down and he's ready to catch David. And then he hears a message that another town is being attacked by the Philistines and he has to leave. He has to run off and go, go defend this other town. And in both of those cases, you see God showing up to confirm to David that God is in charge that God is taking care of David, that God is going to, if Saul is about ready to catch David, God can still make Saul go on a detour to save some other town. God is protecting David. This is an amazing thing. David doesn't need to protect himself because God is protecting David. But on a bigger picture, Saul thinks he knows God's will, but he doesn't. So I want to ask you this question. I want to go on a little detour with us today. How do you learn God's will? Let me start by giving you kind of the recipe for how it worked back in David's day. How do you determine God's will back then? Well, there were four basic things that were true if you wanted to be a person who found God speaking to you or you understood God's will clearly. Number one, maybe you found some instruction in the words of Scripture. Not everybody had access to the words of Scripture, but maybe you had heard something and that gave you God's insight on this particular thing. God gave a lot of insight on a lot of different things and maybe you paid attention. Maybe you heard God through the words of His Scripture. Maybe you were a prophet and you heard God in a vision. And the prophets who did hear God in a vision usually tested it or other people tested it. In fact, Moses said, if a prophet shows up, you should test him. If what he says doesn't come, through, doesn't come true, kill him, get rid of him. But if what he says does come true, then he's a prophet and listen to him. Okay, so maybe you're a prophet and you heard God's word and you tested it. Uh, maybe you're a priest and you used the Urim and the Thummim to figure out God's will in that particular thing under those particular circumstances. Or finally, number four, you were a normal person who went to a priest or a prophet. And that's what David was doing, right? David wasn't hearing God speak to him in some miraculous way. David wasn't going off quietly to a, to a quiet, secluded place and he was praying some prayer and then waiting around for God to give him some kind of insight. David would just go to the person that was with him, the, the priest, and ask him this question. So that's how it worked back then. But what about now? Well, there's some things that are different now. Two Bible verses that I want to share with you from the New Testament times that help us understand this a little bit better. One of them is from Acts chapter 2, verse 17, and it says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. This is Peter quoting a passage from Joel, the prophet, about some future day when the spirit of God will be given to everybody. And Peter is saying that to say this prophecy has come true now. And he said that 2,000 years ago. So if that prophecy came, through, came true 2,000 years ago, then that prophecy is still true today. God still gives his Holy Spirit to people. And in fact, it's confirmed by what Jesus said in the book of John. Let me show you that one. Jesus says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Jesus is saying, The Holy Spirit is going to teach you directly. And he's going to remind you of Jesus. And he's going to remind you of Jesus and everything Jesus taught you. And so the Holy Spirit, available to everyone who's a Jesus follower, the Holy Spirit, present with everyone who's a Jesus follower, is teaching everyone directly who is a Jesus follower. Well, does that mean now I can go off into the closet and just close my eyes and, and pray and, and wait around until I get some sort of word from God? Well, not exactly. Because, see, the principles from the Old Testament are still true. So if you translate those Old Testament principles into today, you get a different set of principles. Let me show them to you. Today, 
The way you find God's will is, number one, you find instruction in the words of Scripture. Scripture hasn't changed. God's word is still there. You can still find it. Just read it. Number two, you might be like a prophet or a priest because you are indwelled by the Spirit of God. And so you might have insight or guidance from God, and you've tested it. You have some insight from God. You have a thought. You have a a whisper, an inkling in your heart. There's this passage that David himself wrote in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's this idea that God can lead us through our desires. And maybe you have an inclination in your heart of where you want to go. And so you've tested it and it's confirmed to be in line with scripture. But there's one more thing. You're not the only person on the planet with the spirit of God right? You're not the only person on the planet with the Spirit of God. And therefore, every other believer in your life is also a priest who can also hear the Holy Spirit speak to them. And so that leads you to this last principle. You, surrounded by other priests, seek confirmation from other faithful Christians. You and I are in the dual position of being both David and Abiathar at the same time. We are David in the fact that we need a priest. We are Abiathar in the fact that we have access to God directly. We are both. And if we try to pretend that we are only one of them, we are missing out. How do you hear God's word? How do you hear God's voice? Well, let me give you sort of my own personal principles. For me, there are four. Number one, I ask the question, and I've shared this with you before. What does God's word say? About whatever the circumstance is, what does God's word say? If I don't know what God's word says about a topic, then I need to look it up and not just find the one verse that seems like it makes sense. I need to look it up to find out what God has to say about it in total. We're going to get to that in just a little bit, actually, because we're going to see what happens when you only get part of God's word down. But I need to know what God's word says about an issue. Number two, I also need to investigate myself and be like, what does my heart say about this issue? If I'm in line with God, if I have put God first in my life, then his spirit is with me and there is a testimony in my heart of where God wants to lead me. And so I need to listen to that. I don't need to always follow it 100% because my own heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But that's an indication of where God might be leading me. So I need to be aware of it. What does my heart say? But then number three, number three is what do the people in my life who know both of these other things, also say. People who know God's word and people who know my heart. Is there someone in this world who knows God's word better than I do? Is there someone in this world who knows my heart, maybe even better than I do? Is there a person who knows both God's word and my heart? And those people, what do they say? Now, I've got to admit to you, the problem that I've faced for the last a couple of years is that even though that's sort of the principle that I have used to follow God's will in my life, over the last couple of years, this principle has been incredibly broken for me. There have been a number of times in the past couple of years where I have been absolutely clear about what God's Word says about a particular thing. And when I have been absolutely clear about where my heart is on a particular thing, but I've been surrounded by a whole bunch of people who also I thought knew God's word and who also I thought knew my heart who disfellowshipped themselves from me because of something. Or people who stuck stuck around with me and were telling me the exact opposite things from what I thought God's word said and what was going on in my heart. And so for the past couple of years, I have been in an internal kind of warfare struggle in my own soul, trying to decipher what God's will is. Maybe some of you can sympathize with me on some of these things, but whether you can or you can't, I'm just trying to help you understand where I've been coming from because there are times in my life, and it's more recent than it was before, where I've been very clear on God's word and my heart, but yet the people in my life are going in a different direction. 
than those things. And it's been painful, and it's been difficult. But you know what? This passage today has given me an insight on a fourth thing I can add to my recipe. Did you notice David? He was clear on what God said, right? He was clear on what his heart was. He was ready to go after the first time. But the men around him said no. And the interesting thing about that circumstance is that by taking action, by going to attack Keilah, by going to attack the Philistines at Keilah, David saved other people. Here's the question. Who benefits from my options? I feel one way. The people around me feel another way. The next question is, who benefits? If David attacks the Philistines in Keilah, the people of Keilah benefit. But if David attacks, if, if David doesn't attack this, the Philistines in Keilah, then his own men benefit. They don't have to risk their lives. If David does the attack, the people of Keilah benefit. If David doesn't attack, his own men get, you know, safety and security. But if David does attack, he gets to show his own men that God's word is more important than their opinion. And if David doesn't attack, he communicates to his men that their word is more important than God's. Who benefits the most? Because you see, if David attacks, he rescues the people who have no voice. And if David doesn't attack, he's paying attention to the people closest to him with the loudest voice. You see, only one of these circumstances is sacrificial. Only one of these circumstances is blessing someone else with the resources God has given you. And only one of those circumstances is ab actually what God actually said to do, go, and, go up and attack. And so now David has God's word, go and attack, and he runs it through this filter. What do I think? What do the people around me think? But he's also got this other thing. What would God really want me to do? And it's rescue the people. You can see that in Saul. He thinks he knows God's will, but all he's got is selfishness. Oh my goodness, let me warn you. Please, please beware of any time when God's will lines up with your own. Any time when you think you've figured out God's will and it happens to be the same thing that's going to bless you. See, the, the challenge that we need to face is that we're people who, who need to understand God's word sometimes is just God's word, even if it doesn't benefit me. Write this down. I want to encourage you to follow God's word and not just the parts that benefit you. We finish the story in chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, remember the Philistines that he needed to take the detour so he couldn't chase David anymore, but after he's done chasing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, that is what it means. This is the port john of the ancient world. It's known as a cave. Um, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. David and his men are already in that same cave, but it's a deep enough, dark enough cave that they are back there in the back, and Saul is there. Look what happens. The men said... This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. That's exactly what Saul thought, wasn't it? 
Saul found the convenient moment when David was captured in a walled-off city. And he says, this is God. David has found a convenient moment when his enemy is literally distracted right in the same cave where David is. And his men are like, look, this convenience must mean God. This convenience must mean God's will is here. And the whole question comes back up again. What is God's will in this situation? And so David, he takes his knife or his sword or whatever he's got, and he creeps up behind Saul. But some moment between the start of the creep and the arrival at Saul, David has this second thought. Is it really that God's will perfectly lines up with my circumstances? Is it really that God's will is to make the most convenient thing possible for me? And as a matter of fact, we don't know when God said these words, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with. We don't know when God said those words, but we also don't know when God plans to fulfill them. He didn't say, I will do those things when Saul is in front of you using the bathroom. He said, I will do those things for you. No time limit, no time given. And so here's David in the moment of the creep. And he's like, where do I put this knife? And he has the second thought. Maybe just maybe when God said, I will, I should wait for God to will. And maybe, just maybe, my convenience is not synonymous with God's will. And maybe, just maybe, the thing that seems to benefit me is not what God wants me to do right now. And so David cuts off a corner of the robe and sneaks back into the cave. But notice what happens next with David. This is so amazing. Verse 5, afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. See, that was a disgraceful act. He saved Saul's life, but he still disgraced him. He humiliated him because he could have killed him. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. You see, the men remembered one thing God had said. We don't know when it was said. We don't know when it was, if it was ever written down. But the men remembered this is the day that God said when he said, I will give you your enemy into your hands. The men knew one aspect of God's will, but David knew more. David remembered chapter 10, verse 1. Because way back in chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel says this. Let's put it up. It says, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? See, before the moment in the cave, before God made the promise to David, God had also made a promise to Saul. And he said, Saul, I'm anointing you ruler over the people. And until Saul is dead, God's word is still true. And it doesn't matter if one part of God's word makes his will seem convenient to you or to me. It doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not all of God's will supports this specific circumstance that brings you benefit. Or if maybe, just maybe, God's will for your life is bigger than one moment of your benefit. I want to finish just by reading out the rest of the story. 24, verse 8, Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My lord the king, 
When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there's nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. Again, Saul still thinks that God's will is convenience. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And the reason I read all the rest of that is the very end. David gave a promise to Saul where he said, I will make sure to care for your family. And he did it. Years, years later, there's a man named Mephibosheth who's a descendant of Saul. And David says, I'm going to take care of that guy. And he gives him all kinds of wealth and resources because he's the last one alive of all of Saul's family when the kingdom changes. David kept his promise. But there are a couple things left just to tie this up. First, I want to encourage you, like David, to leave it all in God's hands. Leave the results in God's hands. Follow God's word, not just the parts that benefit you, and leave the results in God's hands. When I was a kid, um, and I say kid, when I was in high school, oh, man alive, am I going to say this? So I entered high school in 1989, okay, so now you know. And um, I was going to graduate in 1993. And when I entered high school and when I was preparing to graduate, um, I was thinking about the significance of how close we were to the year 2000. How many of you remember the year 2000? Oh, those are such glorious days, right? Back in the, back in the days of being afraid for all the technology in the world to just explode on us in Y2K and not knowing if anything was going to exist on January 2nd. You know, those were the days. Anyway, in 1993, I wasn't worried about the 2000 apocalypse. What I was doing is I was doing math, and the kind of math I was doing was church math. And what I mean by that is that while my dad was preaching, I would add up the numbers in the Old Testament of the years that people were alive. And one night at Sunday night church, because we did that back then, I was sitting there in the uh, auditorium with my Bible and uh, comment card like we've got here, but I wasn't writing any comments or prayer requests on it. I was, I was doing math problems, and I was adding up the ages of all the human beings who lived and when they had their kids, and I was doing a genealogy, and I was adding up all the different ages of all these different people, and I figured it out. Because in my Bible, it told me when Abraham lived, according to a date. And then I just, I just added backwards from that. And I figured out that God made Adam and Eve in 4,000-ish B.C. And I, I didn't trust my math, so I was rounding it to like 4,000 and maybe 4 B.C. Because I knew that Jesus was technically born in 4 B.C., and I thought, well, wouldn't that be cool if, like, if, like the, if Jesus was born just 4,000 years after Adam? Wouldn't that be cool? And so I was doing all this math, and I figured it out, and Adam must have been created 4,000 years before Jesus. I was super excited about that. And then I looked at the calendar, and I was like, wait a minute, 2,000 is around the corner. 
4,000 plus 2,000, that's 6,000. And I was like, oh, Peter has this passage in the New Testament where he says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And so if a thousand years is like a day, 6,000 years was like six days. And God had this, had like this principle set up in the Old Testament called the Sabbath, where you work for six days and then you take day seven off. And so day seven is like the holy day. It's like the day off. And and so 6,000 years, meaning six days, day seven, there's this thing in Revelation called the millennium. It's a thousand year period of time where it's supposed to be peace on earth and, and the kingdom of God is running there. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's, there's 4,000 years, there's 2,000 years. And then there's a perfect, perfect, perfect span of time. Seven, the 7,000 year would be beginning in year 2000 and it would go to year 3000 and the millennium of Jesus would start then. And oh my goodness, if Jesus is going to come back in the year 2000, then that means the rapture has to happen in 1993. And it lined up with my graduation. <laughs> and I kid you not, when I found that out, I was like, the whole universe was designed for me. <laughs> now, I kid you not, I have grown up a lot since then. And pretty much 100% of everything that I have just explained to you, I no longer agree with. So let's just, get that, let's just get that out of the way right there. If you want more details, I can share more details with you some other time. But like, like don't take anything that I have just said as something that I still hold on to today. Just n almost none of it. But I was so amazed as a high schooler to learn that God had orchestrated the whole universe to coincide with me graduating from high school. God is so amazing. The will of God is so good, blessing my soul. I know other people have been waiting for God to come back, waiting for Jesus to return, waiting for the rapture to happen. I, was, I know other people have been waiting for a long time and all of them were disappointed, but I was going to be, I was going to get my graduation paper I was going to walk outside that building and it was going to be zap to heaven time. And I today am so astonished at the literal arrogance that has to be true in a person's heart to think that for whatever reason, God's will in the world perfectly lines up with my convenience. And yet we do it all the time. I kid you not, we do it all the time. I was raised in an environment. I told you some of the things that I was raised in with this mindset about adding up the numbers and whatnot. But I was raised in an environment that literally said Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And the, the best one of them, the best of those three sons was Japheth. He was the smartest one. And he was the one that became the father of all the white people in Europe. And I... I was raised with this mythology that the smartest of all Noah's sons was the progenitor of all the white people. And I was raised with this idea that, that only men could stand up on a stage in a church context and teach people God's word. And I was raised with a number of other sort of perspectives and thoughts. And isn't it so convenient that the people who taught me these things were white men. Like, if I ever hear or believe a thing that benefits me more than others, it's probably time for me to think again. For you and for me, if God's will ever lines up with your will, it's probably time to think again. We need to rethink this stuff all the time. I'll share with you just one more little snippet. I'm, I'm probably going to get in trouble with this one, but it has been bothering me for the past couple of years. I have some friends in churches in this town who have told me to my face that they firmly believe Anthony Fauci is a fraud because he gets attention and money. And these same people have told me that their church is great 
And God is blessing their church. And they know it because they have higher attendance and better offerings. I'm not going to evaluate to you today or even to myself which one of those statements that they were telling me was the true statement and which statement is the false statement. Is God cursing Anthony Fauci and blessing their church? Or is it the other way around? Or what? What I'm saying is it's so convenient when the way I view the world lines up with the way I want to view the world. The secular world around us calls that confirmation bias. The Bible calls it sin, selfishness, arrogance. And David hears the word from God from his friends that perfectly lines up with the convenience of his opportunity, and he says, no, God also says. I want us to be the the kind of people who take what I think God's will is And recognize that when it lines up with my will, it's probably time to double check. There's a really important verse in Luke chapter 22 on this topic. It's from the mouth of Jesus. In verse 42, it says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In that moment in the garden, Jesus knew that the convenient thing for him, the thing he would want for himself, was not in line with God's will for him. The Father had a plan. The Father had a redemption plan. And Jesus needed to walk through that plan, not his own. And any time we think that God's will has somehow magically aligned with my own convenience, perhaps we need to remember Jesus in the garden and say, God, still it needs to be your will, not mine. I want to be with David, not Saul. I want to be with Jesus, not me. And I hope today as we come to this communion moment, that we can take that posture of surrender and say, Jesus, you shed your blood as an evidence of the Father's will over my own. And I need to embrace the same. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.